Hey, welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where I find things out and I tell them to you. Uh, This week, the findings we have are Steve Jobs getting away with stuff, except uh, really early in his life. And then we also have the story of the indie developer behind Nano Studio and uh, what has happened to the iOS indie developer dream. All right, on to the findings. When I was a kid, I came across a game at the arcade called Arkanoid. In Arkanoid, you controlled a rectangle. You move that rectangle across the bottom of the screen in the hopes of intercepting a ball that was bouncing around the screen. So once you intercepted the ball, it would bounce off your rectangle and then bounce off the other sides of the screen, and then it would knock out some blocks at the top of the screen. And if you knocked out enough blocks, then you got to go on to the next level. Years later, I came across a PC game named Breakout. And I assumed that Breakout was a clone of Arkanoid because it had such a generic name, it reminded me of some kind of store brand Arkanoid. Uh, when in fact, the, the opposite was true. Breakout was created by Atari in 1975, and in the 80s, Taito had cloned it and named that clone Arkanoid. So, the reason I was thinking about Arkanoid, or actually, the reason I was talking about Breakout, is that it's one of the objects in the book The History, wait, A History of Video Games in 64 Objects. And the story of Breakout uh, includes a, a story, a well-known story about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. But there is a part of that story that I didn't know before. And um, we'll talk about that. But first, we'll talk about the well-known part, which you may have heard. But to recount quickly, in 1975, Steve Jobs worked at Atari. And Steve Wozniak worked at Hewlett-Packard. And they at Atari they're going to make Breakout, and this is a thing. This is a thing I didn't know before, but Breakout is an iteration of Pong, because if you think about it, in Pong you move around a rectangle, and you bounce a ball across the screen. Breakout adds a bunch of blocks at the top that you could break out of. So they're making Breakout, and Steve Jobs got the task of creating a prototype of Breakout. And uh, Nolan Bushnell, the president of Atari, wanted to use as few transistor chips as possible because, uh, you know, obviously the, the less less you need, the, the cheaper things will be. And uh, most Atari games required between 150 and 170 chips. And uh, Nolan Bushnell gave Steve Jobs an incentive where 
would get some amount of money for every chip he reduced from the original Pong design. So I don't know exactly how many chips Pong used, but uh, for each chip less than Pong used uh, that he had in his design, uh, he would get some amount of money. So Steve Jobs didn't know how to do this, so he went to Steve Wozniak, and uh, Steve Wozniak came up with the design for the most part, and Steve Jobs presented it. And the, the design used only 46 chips, so he, he shaved off like 100 chips, uh, which is pretty amazing. And uh, Steve Jobs got a bonus of $5,000. And the famous part of this story is uh, the, the deal was that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak would split the money evenly. But Jobs told Wozniak that the bonus was $750, or $700, so he just gave him $350 and pocketed the rest. I think, I think $5,000 in 2021 dollars is somewhere around $20,000. So... Uh, that's how bad he ripped off his friend, and that's the part of the story that's famously recounted. But um, in A History of Video Games and 64 Objects, they go on to say that they couldn't actually use that design at Atari. Um, the reasons are not super specific, but it says that um, the design was too compact and uh, it was too complicated, so they couldn't put it into production. They couldn't mass produce it. So the engineers at Atari went to Steve Jobs and said, okay, uh, you're going to have to tell us how this works because I'm sure we could, we could build a production design that has fewer chips uh, using whatever principles you put into your design. And of course... Steve Jobs had no idea how it was done or how his prototype worked. So um, I'm going to quote from the book here. It says, Jobs, not willing to divulge the extent of Wozniak's contribution, was unwilling to help Atari engineers decipher the prototype. I think this is really interesting because uh, we know today that Steve Jobs was incredibly convincing and very, very good at uh, getting people to accept things they would otherwise not believe. But how he got through this actual situation is, is a mystery to me. And uh, I was trying to think through the possibilities. Uh, I'm trying to think exactly what, what he would have said or, or what I would have said if I was somehow in this kind of sitcom-esque situation. One possibility is uh, maybe he made up a lot of technical mumbo-jumbo and tried to confuse people away. Maybe he said, uh, you know, you pass this, pass this through this, like, floor transform and take the second derivative and then it'll be all clear to you. And maybe the engineers were just like, I'm too busy to understand this, and this is just too confusing, forget it, let's just leave them alone. And I've been in a few jobs where 
um, it's so hard to understand somebody that you just uh, decide not to use their help. So that's plausible, but I'm, I'm not really sure that Steve Jobs could have come up with convincing fake technical stuff. Another thing he could have done, a variation of that, is to just go on the attack. To just uh, say something like, well, you know, if you don't understand this design, then you don't deserve to understand this design because you're too stupid to understand my brilliant engineering here. And what we should do is we should get some engineers who do. And then, you know, he'd just have to hope that they were insecure enough to uh, accept that and not ask any follow-up questions or, or anything like that. Another possibility, which I guess, I guess I think is unlikely now because it would have been reported is you do the consultant thing where you say, well, my, my job was to uh, provide you with this design. It wasn't, my job wasn't to explain to you and hold your hand and uh, walk with you through the basics of uh, electronic engineering. Now, of course, you know, I think he was just a regular employee and his job did include explaining his work, but uh, sometimes people can get away with redefining their jobs. Um, and maybe, maybe he did that. And maybe he went with, okay, well, if you want me to explain this, then I'm going to need another $20,000. Again, I think we would have heard if he had done that. So, um, you know, I have a tendency to believe that he came up with something really slick because, um, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with his WWDC presentations and, you know, presenting the iPhone 4 and um, his his fully mature, uh, super persuasive self is mostly what I've seen. But this was him when he, when he was, he was like in his 20s. So another possibility is that he just sullenly refused. Um, just kind of said, nope, I'm not saying anything. Nope, I'm, I'm not doing anything. And maybe maybe even stop talking like a, like a child. Like, you know, people would be like, Steve, you got to talk to us. And just not say anything, which is extra weird. But sometimes when people are like that, um, Sometimes people will feel pity or they just won't feel like dealing with it and they'll just move on. So that, that's, that's a possibility. You know, if you happen to actually know what happened, and this has been written somewhere, please let me know. Email me at smallfindings at fastmail.com because this is a great mystery to me. But whatever he did, it is a pretty interesting insight into his character. Um, because... He was basically trapped here and sort of, in a way, sort of under siege. And he just decided to just fully uh, just not give up and uh, be fully defiant. And, of course, not even consider uh, the moral choice, which is maybe to, to explain what the truth of the situation was. <laughs> Most of the music I've made in the last decade has been made in some part with either Nano Studio or Nano Studio 2. 
Nano Studio and Nano Studio 2 are a class of software application known as digital audio workstations. Digital audio workstations are software that let you produce music and <clears throat> are usually multifunction. They, they do a few different things, um, one of which uh, may be synthesizing sounds and arranging them. And then uh, a lot of them often let you edit audio and record audio. So traditionally, these are very powerful computer applications. So, you know, that run on your, your laptop or, you know, in decades past on your desktop. The DAW that I used before Nano Studio was Ableton Live. And I think the one before that may have been um, may have been probably SoundForge, and uh, before that, reaching back to the late '90s, CoolEdit. But the the interesting thing about Nano Studio is that it's an iOS app, and I I started using Nano Studio um, when it was released in 2011, and around that time, I was very uh, I bought into a lot of hype about mobile apps and, uh, you know, I thought they were going to be very creative and interesting and unlock, uh, a way for independent developers to make livings and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think that anymore, but I still use Nano Studio and I, I still use iOS, even though I have problems with Apple's monopolistic practices because... Unfortunately, the mobile phone market has shrunk down to uh, either iOS or, or Android, and I can't, I can't live with the, the, the monitoring and uh, spying that, that Google does. So I'm still on iOS, and I don't really like apps, <laughs> but, but I still really like Nano Studio 2. And I thought that Nano Studio was an interesting exception to the rule about what happened to indie developers, uh, mobile indie developers. So to, to back up again, you know, around 2010, 2011, uh, for a while, there was this idea that people could develop, uh, independent developer, developers could make apps and then sell them on the app store. And then they'd be able to make a living and they'd be able to do all kinds of creative and interesting things. And that turned out to not be the case. Uh, what ended up happening was Apple encouraged a race to the bottom and because they don't want apps to be expensive, right? They, they want apps to be cheap and phones to be expensive. Uh, and eventually, um, very few indie developers were able to make a living from the app store. Um, like a very, a very tiny percentage of people, I'll link this in the show notes, uh, were found to actually uh, install very many third-party apps. Uh, and the app store is mostly, uh, mostly dominated by things made by, made by big companies. But I thought Nano Studio was an exception. Uh, when it was released in 2011, um, it, it had 
fairly fairly great sales for something that cost twenty dollars. So so even back then, um, a five dollar app was very expensive, uh, and you know many apps were a dollar or free or free with in app purchase. Um, so charging twenty dollars was incredible, but lots of people are buying it because. Is frankly really good. There's there's a ton of detail and there's a ton of capability built into that app, and every every single corner of that app is polished and often has has custom UI that's not just uh, off the shelf uh, iOS provided components. I I actually use it mostly for for MIDI sequencing and. Uh, a few effects, some some EQ, and things like that. I have I probably haven't even scratched the surface. I rarely edit any of the any of the instruments that come with it. Um, I you know I've I buy I've bought several in-app purchases partly out of loyalty, but also the instrument packs uh, I find are extremely good. Like the 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 orchestral sounds not not all of them are quote realistic but um, they're all pretty interesting and, and very for me very usable um, but there's a lot of things people do with editing their own instruments and creating their own instruments in it uh, and I've I've never gotten into that I don't there's a lot of stuff that seems geared towards making uh, dance music which um, you know, I don't really make, but there's there's a whole there's whole worlds of stuff there that I haven't used. So, um, you know, I, I assumed this was the one success story from um, that that whole optimistic uh, indie app store kind of craze. Back at the beginning of August of this year, uh, a new uh, studio or a new uh, instrument pack was released. It's um, I think it was called Studio Drums, and I I happened to see it uh, on through a notification. Like I pretty much don't allow any notifications from any app except for from Nano Studio. So <clears throat> I went and I immediately bought it because uh, I like to support Nano Studio. But also, I'm, I'm always interested in uh, having more drum sounds available. Uh, and then I went uh, and tried to look up some information about it. And it took me to the forums for Blip Interactive, which is the, the name of the one-man company that makes uh, Nano Studio. And in it, um, the sole developer, Matt Borstel, had announced it. But he also stated that he couldn't promise much else other than fixes this year. And the reason being was that Nano Studio 2 was not really making that much money. It turned out that Nano Studio 2 was not doing that well in terms of selling and making money. So this is a surprise to me and maybe a surprise to a few other people in that thread, he explained that Nano Studio One sold really well, and the sales from Nano Studio One funded four to five years of updates to Nano Studio One, 
and also fully funded the development of Nano Studio 2. So Nano Studio 1 was released in 2011, and the impression I get is it supported him all the way through the release of Nano Studio 2 in 2018. So sales from Nano Studio 1 supported him and, and his family for about seven years. So he goes on to say that the funding from Nano Studio 1 ran out, and Nano Studio 2 brings in 5% of the revenue of Nano Studio 1. So I, I think he's saying, my, my guess is he's saying that um, you know, over time, for a fixed time period, if you compare what's come in from Nano Studio 1 and what's come in from Nano Studio 2 in that same amount of time, it's like 1 20th the revenue that Nano Studio 1 brought in. So this has dispelled uh, my illusion that Matt Borstel is the one success story from the indie iOS uh, app. Struggling to <laughs> come up with what to call this, but uh, there was a period of hype where, like again, everybody thought that you could be an indie developer thanks to the App Store, and I thought that Matt Borstel was the one person who actually was able to do that. But it, the truth is, I guess, he was able to do that for a while, for for seven years, which is not bad. But you you can definitely cannot repeat that today, because he tried to repeat it himself with Nano Studio 2, and he couldn't. As to why this is... Um, Further down in the thread, he says that, um, I'm going to quote from what he wrote here. He says, when the App Store moved exclusively to iOS, discoverability of new apps disappeared overnight. So he's saying that uh, there used to be, the App Store used to also be on the web, and you could search for things on the web, and it would be indexed. Uh, by search engines, and you'd be able to find apps that way. Uh, but uh, at some point, the App Store just stopped appearing on the web and only appeared in iOS. So he continues, To get to the music section, it's apps, then scroll down to near the bottom, and then go to top categories, and then go to see all, and then go to music. That's quite quite a lot there. Okay, continuing the quoting. Once you get to the music section, you're typically spammed with the same handful of usual suspects. DJ, Simply Piano, Oxy, etc. They've been there for years and years. Literally, no exaggeration. Some of them them have been there so long, it almost feels like a, quote, special arrangement, end quote, has been made. The store promotion model seems to form a positive feedback loop where certain apps are promoted. They sell well, and so they continue to be promoted. Okay, so taking a break from this quoting. Uh, very similar things happen in um, things like Spotify, where something is at the top, something is popular, uh, something is an artist's most popular song, 
Uh, so when people go to check out that artist, they will get that song and that song gets more popular. Uh, same thing uh, with uh, things that are placed high in playlists. Okay, continuing what he wrote. Apple removed their affiliate support to bloggers and special interest websites, forcing the smaller guys who found and promoted the new apps, for example, Discord, spelled D-I-S-C, Cord, uh, and Jacob, Jacob Hawk, to go to Patreon, etc. Meanwhile, having saved a lot of money that way, they realized they could actually double their money by charging developers to advertise and promote on the App Store. Pausing the quoting, I did not know they did that. That is terrible. Um, I guess we're getting into uh, opinion rather than findings here, but let's get back to uh, what Matt Borstel wrote. This charge is made per click, not per sale. I tried it early on to promote Nano Studio 2 and lost a few thousand over a couple of months. I think I got lucky with Nano Studio 1, and my experience with Nano Studio 2 is par for the course. So this this is interesting to me because I thought, and this is probably part of the reason also, I thought part of the reason something like Nano Studio 2 might not be able to make it these days is because people are so conditioned into uh, not paying more than a dollar or not paying anything for apps now, now that uh, very few uh, companies use iOS apps as, as a way to make money directly. They mostly use it as a funnel into uh, other things that they charge for or for just collecting user data from people. Uh, I thought the, the thing where they, Apple charges app developers to promote things was particularly brutal. It reminds me a lot of um, something Spotify talks about on their website, where um, musicians can, who are already don't get paid a lot from Spotify um, or, or the other streaming services, because the devil's deal with streaming services is that uh, people pay roughly around $120 a year for access to kind of all the music in the world. Well, not quite, but quite a bit of music. And that money gets split up uh, among, you know, millions of artists. So that, that doesn't amount to much. Like sometimes, um, you know, I think as of last year, an artist that would get streamed uh, 7,000 times, or sorry, an artist that would get streamed a million times would get paid like $7,000. So some of that is not Spotify's fault, but they, they do a thing where they, they tell artists that uh, if you agree to pay, be paid even less than that, uh, we may or may not, you can't really check on us, we might rank you higher in uh, algorithmic playlists. So... It is, um, it's like a form of 
pay to play, but it's not it's not legal. It's not payola because Spotify is not a broadcast radio station. Um, but yeah, I, I really feel that that and uh, Apple's thing are are kicking people while they're down. But uh, as to what uh, Matt Borstel can do, um, some people in the thread suggested he go to the subscription model, and a lot of these people were people uh, who people who prefaced their suggestion saying, "Now, normally I hate the subscription model, but." Uh, maybe you should do the subscription model because that's where all software is going and it guarantees a certain amount of money per month, given, of course, given that they, they actually pay for it. Um, so he, he considers it and he says another thing he could do is charge 100 pounds uh, the way that... Um, which which he feels like he could do on desktop, and I have to point out that's that's a thing I've always found strange, but I I know why it works. Um, software making software for mobile is no easier than making software for the desktop, but um, customers have not been conditioned to expect to pay one dollar for a desktop app, although that may happen. Um, and he says that. You know, at the same time, he gets angry emails about not providing updates for Nano Studio One, which is now 10 years old, sometimes threatening legal action. Uh, so, yeah, that's not surprising and, uh, and, and sad. As for something like Patreon, which somebody else suggested... He says he likes it, but he says, quote, I'm concerned that the generous few may end up paying the way for the majority, end quote. That, I, I don't understand why he would have a problem with that, but I do understand the next thing he says, where he says, also, I know I'd feel guilty if some subscribers had paid a fair amount of money and I felt like I hadn't produced enough. Somehow it makes it all far more personal. The, the other thing, now that I think about it, maybe what he's saying about the generous few is the generous few might expect more. Uh, and, you know, they might be more like clients uh, for, for a consultant than, than like customers. So there, there is the story of Nano Studio and what I thought was maybe the one free and clear successful independent app developer. All right, those are the findings for this week. Thanks for listening. And if you have any findings of your own that you want to share or any comments, questions, criticisms, uh, songs, you could uh, you could just email me at Small findings at fastmail.com. See you next time.